Keith Murphy DeConcini from Disability Empowerment Now, Part 2. The Desirability of Disability and the Estrangement Factor. Keith Murphy DeConcini returns to the Fedora Chronicles radio show to discuss two of his articles, The Estrangement Factor of Mild Cerebral Palsy and The Desirability of Disability, The Social Misconceptions of Asexuality. In this conversation, Keith and I, Eric Render King Fisk, talk about what it really means to live with disabilities, combating misconceptions, and how people with disabilities do not want to be treated differently by the rest of society. Be sure to look for Keith's own podcast, Disability Empowerment Now, which is currently in production and will be available in October 2021. So back on the show here is my good friend Keith Murphy DeConcini, who I had on the show a short while ago, depending on when this all airs, right, Keith? Yeah. Um, one of the things that it's like I I wish I had done before I flew down from New Hampshire is read these papers that you wrote for college. Because these are great insights into not only you, but why you're doing the the, the Den podcast, the Disability Empowerment Now podcast. And this is a, a really good insight into who you are as a person. And that there's something about these papers that really sort of touched me. Uh, first one is the estrangement factor of mild cerebral palsy. And the other one here, this one, this very short, but it blew me away. Yeah. It blew me away. The desirability of disability, the social misconception of asexuality. So, I wanted to really sort of get to the the main thesis of both of these papers one at a time, yeah. and I also think that these these are two, like two halves to a, to the same to a whole. Is that a, is that a good way to look at it? Yeah, yeah, uh, and they were both written during my first year of studying at the City University of New York School of Professional Studies in their MA program in Disability Studies. Uh, And obviously the estrangement factor is a lot more personal than the desirability of disability, but both papers are incredibly honest and authentic. And later on in my uh, graduate career, I would tackle the complexities of disability and masculinity. So, yeah, they two halves of the same whole, but later on another part comes in, and that's I accidentally wrote my quote-unquote master thesis without even trying. Uh, But had I not written 
these two papers, seminal papers, when I did, I would not have written anything else substantial. Yeah. These papers would step one for me. Uh, and I'd still get chills reading them. Yeah. Because they are, I mean, the estrangement factor of my old cerebral palsy is 14 pages, and it's the quote-unquote perfect introduction to my psyche. Yeah, yeah. As you can get. Uh, and then the desirability of disability is a very short paper about half the length, uh, and it tackles or begins to tackle the last great taboo of disability, which surrounds our sexuality. And so, and what impresses me the most is that I wrote these two papers in my first year in the program. No kidding. Rather than the last year of my studies. Uh, So sometimes you strike gold right at the get-go. I really want to sort of hammer this part home. Um, Even even though in uh, the estrangement factor of mild cerebral palsy is a longer paper. Yeah. This was more of a page turner. And 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 the thing is is like this is Keith right here. Yeah. This is really who you are. Just just like um there's a vulnerability to it. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you talk about things in this paper that I think that it would be um, very difficult for other people to talk about. Yeah. You talk about, you, you sort of, you touched upon this in the first interview that we did together, but um, having something concrete like this and being able to go back and, and, and read it, um, it, it make, I really want to ask you, was it difficult being so vulnerable and so open when, when you wrote this? Well, my teacher at the time uh, was is the director of the program, uh, Dr. Marriott Bates, and I trusted her explicitly uh, in her desire to push me to be uh, as vulnerable as I was. I love the fact that I got to pull a uh, article from the 1950s right off the bat and I only introduced myself on the second page. 
and then I never shut up about <laughs> my <Yeah>. experience. <laughs> but I mean, like the desirability of disability, I would love to expand upon that and have it be a short book. But the estrangement factor of mild cerebral palsy is very much a complete snapshot of a introduction. It would be a great introduction for a memoir when I yeah, get yeah. around to writing uh, one. Uh, and yeah, so it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, although I do touch on uh, that in the paper a lot that it took me a long road to get to the point of actually researching uh, my primary disability. Uh, and I talk at length about the lingering estrangement factor of having uh, a very... My old case of a otherwise very complex uh, no developmental disability. And like I said yesterday on uh, your show, whenever this is, if I didn't have the voice I have, if you want a doctor or a PT or an OT, you would have no idea I had a neurological uh, disorder uh, that I live with. I want to just interrupt you for a second. Yeah. What exactly is cerebral palsy? And how is it different for other people? And, and and tell us more about your specific cerebral palsy. So cerebral palsy is a developmental disorder that occurs during or shortly after birth. It affects the muscle movement and motor uh movements of a person. You have to get diagnosed with it by age three or before. Otherwise, there's no way you're going to get it later in life. Right. It's a non-progressive uh, disorder and it's not trans verbal to another person. Uh, Mine uh, affects my right side almost totally 
than my left side. The only way, the only instance that had been reversed is I broke my left thumb in elementary school roughhousing <laughs> with my cousin. And so I couldn't write for a week or maybe two whenever the healing process uh, repaired my thumb. And so during that time, the cerebral palsy actually transferred itself to the left side of my body. Really? So I could write and use my right hand. Uh, that was only for a couple of weeks. That usually never happens. I've never heard of that happening. Uh, but yeah, you could cut me straight down the middle from the top of my head to uh, my feet. And you would If you could scan me in a machine that would pick up uh, my cerebral palsy, uh, you would see it almost entirely on the right side. Um, my bones are susceptible to freeze in the winter, not so much in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, how, how often does it get below freezing here in yeah. Tucson, Arizona? Yeah, it's not, pretty rare. Not much. Yeah. Uh, but not everyone who has cerebral palsy uh, uses a wheelchair, uses a walker, or some sort of mobility divides. A lot do, uh, but the stock image of a person with cerebral palsy confined to a wheelchair is very outdated and very offensive because it's a very diverse umbrella term of a disorder that can by itself only affect motor movement mm -hmm. of a person. Uh, the intellectual learning disabilities are separate. Uh, a separate uh, thing. Uh, they don't automatically get assigned uh, to a person because they happen to have uh, cerebral palsy. Uh, 
one of the things I also read here, and this is page uh, four um, from your paper here. Uh, can I quote you? Can I, yeah. can, I, can I read this part? The hardest part of having cerebral palsy is not having it per se, but rather how people react to it. The stigma of having cerebral palsy, much like other disabilities, is strong and harsh. People fear what they don't understand. This is especially true for those with disabilities who are high-functioning, since that they do not fit the mold of what the public considers typical disabilities. They're easily targets for abuse and neglect. According to the study by the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 2012, for example, the crimes against people with disabilities were nearly triple those against people without disabilities. Yeah. So, so the hardest part of having cerebral palsy is other people. I mean, I'm, I, yeah. I, I, that's what I that's what I got out of here. Yeah, How, absolutely. Um, you handle it exceptionally well. Um, if I can just talk about you know last night, you know, yeah. Um, Carolyn and I took us out to dinner at this great steak shop. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. You probably remember the name of it better than I do. Okay. No. <laughs> We're going to have to ask her yeah. and insert this later. Um, you handled yourself exceptionally well. And, I mean, it, it, it was crowded. We did have to move because it was a little too loud, a little too noisy. But the thing is, is that you were just a member of the crowd. You were just a... It, it, did it take a lot to get used to the way that people look at you and and, and treat you? And uh, also, there's also an aspect. You really don't put up with a lot of shit. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it it took a lot, and it still takes a lot uh, sometimes to put up with uh, how people look at me. Um, one of the most confounding things to me uh, with my version of cerebral palsy is that sometimes unconsciously I spit when I talk. Yeah. And that's very debilitating to see and experience the reaction from others. Because I have no control over that. I don't know it's happening. Um, it is very much a impediment to my personal uh, life. Uh, and thankfully, a lot of people who have stuck with me over the years have gotten over the fear of, oh my God, he's spitting on me. What if I get sick? What if I catch his disability? There's no chance of that happening, even if I wanted <laughs> to uh, quote-unquote infect people with my disability, right. there is no way in heaven or hell that that's going to happen. But it's 
Another thing is when I talk on the phone to people, customer support, and a lot of them are overseas, uh, and they hear my name, I spell it out because I'm very used to that. It's like a second skin for me. They keep referring to me as ma'am. Or, yeah, ma'am. And that's really odd because the closest female name to Keith, which is a man's name, is Kendra. Uh, Okay. To my knowledge. And I constantly have to fight my urge to say, look, I'm a man. Do you want me to come over there and strip for you? Because you're going to see very quickly that I'm not a man. Uh, If I was ever confused about my gender identity or sexual preference, listening to those comments, which are well-meaning people are just confused out of their mind because my voice, as you can hear, is a slightly higher register than most typical male voices. But you're pretty you're pretty masculine though. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, here you are. It's like you're obviously a man. You have a beard. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You I have mean, a little bit of a beer gut. You're obviously a guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't mean to laugh. I mean, I'm 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 really more laughing at the fact that it's like I mean, I can tell you're a dude. Yeah. You know, and it's like I don't think that you have a feminine voice. No. No. And so, yeah, the stairs. The uh, questions or assumptions about my voice and then when people meet me, they often uh, assume very wrongly that I'm either drunk on recreational drugs or have a intellectual impairment. Which you don't. You have two no, masters. No, you know? <laughs> no. Yeah, absolutely. And they don't say this to me, but I would rather they do because then I could correct them uh, very sharply. You also overcame quite a few physical obstacles. You spent a lot of time with, um, in the hospitals with doctors. Yeah, 99 days in the NICU unit, which is for newborn babies, um, often, very often pre-maids. Uh, and... While the NICU unit 
had improved and progressed with science over the many years since I was born. I was born in the tail end of 1984. Uh, I almost died several times before I got out of the NICU unit. I'd spent most of my time in an incubator, which is that square uh, rectangle like little box right. uh, that's hooked up to a myriad of tubes. And my mother uh, bathed me in classical music uh, so much that the nurses considered my little incubator like Carnegie Hall. Uh, she got me into listening to a lot of opera. She claims that my favorite was La Boheme by Puccini. I have no reason to doubt her. Uh, she claims I liked the Oyards, which makes sense. Do you still listen to that music today? Sadly, no. So... I really wanted to talk about how society treats people with disabilities. Um, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that people can be such assholes, yeah. <laughs> you know? And it was just like, um, cause the thing is, is that you're, you, I, I, you changed my life. We talked about this in the last yeah. episode and it was just ta- hanging out with you. Um, you have some incredible coping mechanisms that, you know, and how to deal with, with jerks, yeah. So I mean, how how do you deal with jerks, and how do you how do you deal with people who ask you um, uh, uncomfortable questions? Well, see, that's the thing. I would rather them ask the uncomfortable questions. Obviously, if I get stopped fifteen times a day, every hour, that's gonna be very fatiguing. Yeah. But if I can't talk about my experience, I'm not gonna be good at my job. Uh, And so I would much rather have to deal with the uncomfortableness and the bluntness of people's questions and educate them uh, than having them believe their own fears, their own prejudices are societal. Like I said uh, before, people often look at disability 
in stock images. Right. And assume that every person with cerebral palsy is in a wheelchair. Every person with autism is antisocial. The list goes on and on and on. And I mean, you could talk to 15 different people with cerebral palsy and 15 different people with autism. Uh, just as a example, and you would probably get 30 different experiences. And that is often completely lost on other people. You're also dealing with a lot of stereotypes. Yes, extremely. Yeah, what's what? What is the one stereotype that you would like to dispel right now? Uh, people with disabilities have active sex lives. Is is that your way of segueing over to your other paper here? Um, I get so. Let's let's talk. Let's talk about this. And um, let's address the elephant in the room here with the desirability of disability, the social misconception of asexuality, and what you're really trying to say with this paper. Now, before I begin, uh, one thing I didn't put in to this paper is that some people with disabilities are asexual in nature. Right. The problem, and there's no problem with that. The problem is with uh, society thinking that every person with a disability is asexual. I mean, I was really struck by the introduction by Alex Comfort MB, uh, page one, page one bottom. What page one of your of your own paper? Of uh, the desirability. Yeah, yeah, uh, bottom of page one in the introduction of sexual consequences of disabilities. The needs of such people, people with disabilities, are better minimized or ignored rather than discussed for fear of embarrassing them, by which we mean that they embarrass or disturb us. That was written and published in 1978, about six years before I was born. A lot has progressed uh, in terms of societal 
attitudes, values, etc. Not that uh, sexuality regarding people with disabilities is literally the great lots taboo. And it is probably going to be the toughest to break. Because, like I said in the title, the desirability of disability. People do not like to see disability as something to be desired. Because they're so stuck on comparing disability to disease and eventual death. Uh, I mean, you can get hit by a bus. Anyone can. Anyone can get run over by a train. You... The fact that you are abled body or disabled has no bearing. The train isn't going to kill. Neither is the car, neither is the beer that is looking for his or her next meal. No one cares. I accept humans who are wrapped up in their own fear of disability. And, yeah, I mean, I'd start the paper of this way. Disability should be a desired variation on what we consider beautiful, not something to be feared. But people fear what they do not understand. Society views disability as a weakness and something to be avoided. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that people, like um, other people, uh, sort of are, are, are worried about people with disabilities being exploited? By, by by predators. Could it have anything to do with that? I'm sure that is a part of some of the fear. Uh, that can't be all of it or even a major part. Um, but it is certainly a possibility. I mean, later in the paper, I quote... A, this is from uh, Tom Shakespeare, no relation. That we know of. Yeah, that we know of. Uh, in the sexual politics of disability, untold desires, uh, this is written and published in 1996, adds... The mother of a disability young woman stated on hearing her daughter 
had a boyfriend. I quote, I thought your disability meant that you wouldn't be interested in boys and that your father and I would be saved this embarrassment. When I read that quote for the first time, probably in the fall of 2014, the breath went out of my body. I'm sure for just 15 seconds, but it felt like five to 10 minutes. I was stunned yeah. by that blatant disregard that somehow disability is going to just by its very nature cancel out human desire. Yeah. Really, I mean, you give, you're giving disability way too much power if you think it can cancel out the primal need for love and sex. It, it just... It's crazy. It it's crazy. It boggles my mind. I think it's insane thinking. Yeah, and like I was talking to one of my uh, fellow students that semester in another class, a young woman with uh, cerebral palsy, and she recounted to me how people would follow her around on the college campus, she got her undergrad degree somewhere else, both uh, men and women judge to ask her, can you have sex? That's tough. And my jaw completely dislocated <laughs> uh, yeah. like 15 feet right. of its way on being facetious about that. But I, and stories like that and like the one quoted in the book aren't strangely not uncommon at all, even uh, relationships and marriages between a disabled partner and a non-disabled partner. That's a minefield of assumptions and stereotypes that put so much undue and undeserved pressure on a couple, and it's just, it's still flabbergasting to me that it doesn't stop. I mean, that quote from 1978. 
eight really was a fortune teller of how difficult it would be for a society of mostly abled individuals would relate or lack thereof Mm -hmm. to people with disabilities having active sex lives. Some of us are parents of multiple children. Uh, Others get talked into uh, not having kids or not going through with a pregnancy because they are disabled. They get coerced mm-hmm. into doing that. It's not free will. Uh, and it all stems from the fear of the unknown and the assumption that disability takes away sexual desire or that you are too broken, sick, uh, defeated, uh, deranged to have sexual contact with. It's one of the things that I think Unfortunately, we will be grappling with as a society for a very, very long time. Uh, And you can say, as one quote says in this paper, that usually sexual contact is reserved somehow the heterosexuals, white, young, mm-hmm. abled body, but in in assuming that that is the echelon of who deserves to have sex or to be desired, yeah. you take out so many other populations and it all stems from fear and disgusted uh, being disgusted by things you don't understand. I mean, sexual positions as I write in this paper uh just in a line. Every different sexual position is a abd- adaptation. Yeah. I mean, you are having adaptive sex whether you know it consciously or not. And so having that argument of 
Oh, you can't have sex, cause you're in a wheelchair. Oh, you can't move certain limbs of your body. It's like, really? I mean, again, adaptive sex is so common uh, and not hard at all. And so, and I just like to pop the balloon of that excuse because it's complete hog watch. I, 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 I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, it, it, you are still emotionally charged over the, the things that you had talked about as far as um, like this quote here. Uh, I thought your disability meant that you wouldn't be interested in boys and that your father and I would have been saved by this embarrassment. One of the ways that I read this is that there's something about parents who just don't want to think about their kids having sex. That's true in a sense, and if they didn't assume that her disability, this young woman, that her disability would somehow mean that she was asexual at birth. Yeah, that's crazy. Because of her disability. But yeah, I agree with you. Parents don't like to think of their children as sexual beings. And I'm sure the reverse is also applicable. Oh, nobody wants to think about their parents having sex. No, no, (laughs) no one does. But when you bring in something like disability and assume that it had... If disability had that power and sway over a human's biological emotion and function, yeah, it would be akin to God. And I mean, that that's a whole nother discussion for another day, but I mean, that still doesn't make any sense. This reminds me of a quote from Robin Williams from Dead Poet Society. Yeah. It's like, what's the point of law, a, a language? What's the what's the point of, of be, the, the ability to, to to speak? And what's the what's the point of having poetry? It's to woo women. <laughs> it's yeah. like, and it's, 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 it's as blatant as that sounds. And this this got me on a on a thought process that um, I don't know if it's appropriate or not. If it, and, and if it isn't, you just let me know. It seems like the basis of civilization, for the most part, in the very beginning at least, was a means of men impressing, um, seducing, keeping, and providing for women and the children that they produce. Is that 
every I mean the thing is is like you look at something like the Taj Mahal the Taj yeah. Mahal I, I I suspect that the Taj Mahal was actually built by the builder because um he got into a wicked bad argument with his wife and wanted to say say something monumental just or build yeah. something monumental to say I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean the thing is that it was just like look I mean not to make this too much about me because I've talked about myself a lot on my own podcast about this is that a lot of what I do is to impress my wife and make her happy and not make her you know quite um uh, so disgusted and discouraged with me sometimes when we're having a, a debate. It, it's it's probably one of the primal driving forces of human behavior, I think, especially with men. And yeah. I don't think that anything or almost anything can circumvent that. We're talking we're talking about a force of nature. Yeah. That that I mean, religion and science can't suppress. Yeah. No. No. And. Some of these fears are very understandable. And I have great empathy for people who have these fears around disabled sexuality. But I don't have empathy for people insisting they're right that this is how it should be right. that people with disabilities should be denied access to pleasure. I mean, even disability masturbation is a huge topic uh, and huge concern which is Crazy. I mean, unless you're doing it out in public, who cares? Who would uh, who would even know? Who would even know unless you're doing it out yeah, in public? And so it, it's really it's mind-boggling how people hear the term accessibility and they think of things. And they should, like ramps, uh, elevator lifts, or specialized restrooms. But if that's all accessibility is, say goodbye to cub cuts on sidewalks, because uh-huh. that's not included, or oh, where that could mean ramps. But really, when you have such a nil view of accessibility and cancels out access to pleasure or a very narrow view of people with disabilities as asexual slackers who don't want to walk, the opposite is very true. And when we make up almost 30% of the country's population, according to recent statistics, of 26 
20% of adults in America live with a disability. One in four women report a disability. Two in five individuals age 50, age 65 or older report a disability, living with a disability. But disabilities can happen at any time. The disability community is very diverse, very headstrong, very right. strong world, and it is the only community on the planet that a person can join at any time in their existence here on Earth. I mean, it's just... I could be disabled like that yeah, with an accident. Yeah. And, I mean, it's the fact that the large statistic uh, I read several years ago had us at 19, almost 20% of the population in America. And now, that's a very recent statistic. And we're almost at 30%. Yeah. And then you open it up to worldwide, and that statistic just gets larger and larger and larger. And it doesn't right. stop. Yeah. I mean, despite I mean, what people. May want and here's the thing. I I, th I think that we we all have some kind of disability. We all yeah. have something that's holding us back, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, uh, intellectual. I I I, th I do think that we all are fighting some kind of um, battle. Uh, you could look at the situation with my wife, who she was in a car accident, and she, um, she was she was almost crippled permanently or was well actually she almost died and she was almost crippled and you know um just because she's uh, she would have been crippled wouldn't have made my desire for her uh any any less uh, and um i got to be careful because she's going to hear this and i don't want to yeah. get into too much trouble but the thing is that it's like you, you you don't stop loving somebody or you shouldn't stop loving them just because they have a disability no, I do think that that's that 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 is crazy. Just because like one day somebody is able and the next day they're disabled doesn't mean that you stop loving them. If anything, almost losing my wife made me love her more. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and another thing that's very true. Another thing is there's there's profound tragic narrative surrounding disability on one side. And then on the other side of the continuum of emotion is uh, this nature of a person with a disability being what is referred to as a super crypt, 
which is a person with a disability who perseveres despite their disability to great acclaim, like a actor, a a published author, a politician. A student who earned two master's degrees. All that. Uh, Meaning you. Making yes. sure that you, I, yeah, I want you to understand that you are like. I, I, before I say this, yeah, I mean, is, is that term? Uh, is it disparaging? Is it a? It... Yeah, I mean, a quick run through of most disparaging terms. You inspire me. You are such a inspiration. Handicapped, crippled, a super crept. And I could probably think of leads 30 more uh, if you gave me five minutes. But yeah, I mean, the other reverse side of super crept. It's assuming that any person with a disability who isn't like the super crypt of the moment who captures local or national or international attention, if they can't meet that level, Mm -hmm. they're not trying hard enough. They're obviously faking their disability. They're playing the victim. And none of that is accurate. I mean, super crypt is no... There is nothing between... There is nothing. The analogy of supercryptum is akin to putting that person on a pedestal. Like right, okay. men usually do with women who they find very beautiful. Uh, it puts them on a pedestal and I don't know anyone who likes to be on a pedestal in any regard or at least if they do it's for a short time only right? and then they want to get off the pedestal they're on super quick And so, but yeah, even though I have done a lot in my life, I'm still a very humble individual. It doesn't take away from my achievements, and I've had great parents, uh, Extremely so, uh, but I don't hang on to my accomplishments 
as validation for my work. I hang on the fact that there's a concept in Buddhism called beginner's mind. And may you never lose that inner curiosity Mm -hmm. of always having to learn more. And so that is what I hold on to the most. Yes, I have uh, two master's degrees. If I get a PhD down the road, great. I'll have another title. But I will still be the same person, the same person who enjoys interviewing others and hearing their stories, their passions, and what motivates them to do the work that they do or hope that they could do in the future. This is another thing about you that I just learned. You and I have something very much in common. Whereas is that no matter how much we accomplish, it's not enough. Like, I, I mean, I, I am crippled with self-doubt, especially first thing in the morning. Like when I wake up, it, it was like I wake up and it's like, am I, am I doing enough with, with everything that I have going on for me? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough for my kids? Am I doing enough for um, my wife? Am, am, I, am I doing enough for everybody? And it's like, and, and you, you don't want to be defined yeah. by just one thing. I mean, I mean, you are accomplished. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you don't want your accomplishments to be the only thing that people know you for. Yeah. It, it, it's like, I like to be known as a disability advocate. Right. But I don't want to just be in disability advocate mode all the time. Uh, That doesn't take away from my profound respect Mm -hmm. of my disability or the other advocates that I know. But like you'd say, you're crippled with self-doubt a lot and that it's never enough. Well, a analogy I use to ground myself is I have a lot of books around me, a lot oh, of yeah, you do. music. Uh, I could read a book a day yeah. for the rest of my life, and I would probably never get through half of the amount of books that I want to read Mm -hmm. in my life. Same with music, same with movies, video games, computer games. So I do have the crippling doubt, um, even though I don't like the term crippling. Uh, I'm sorry if I offended you. Well, Uh, It's okay. But I still have that self-doubt 
people. I know that I'm not going. Someone is going to have to come after I depart mm-hmm. and pick up the torch and continue on and someone after them. And so I'm playing a small cog role in a much greater picture. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I live with depression, a lot of depression. Abraham Lincoln is a very big idol of mine. Uh, he had uh, what was then known as melancholia, uh, what we now uh, know as high-functioning depression, and even though I don't like the functioning labels because you shouldn't uh, categorize people in their ability to function in yeah. self-worth uh, or even worth, period, uh, but what we go through is very common, very natural, uh, very understandable uh, as men, uh, although women also go through it. Oh, yeah. Extremely uh you mentioned my little beer gut, which I totally copied. Well, I have to. one too. Yeah. But, like, I was talking to someone the other day about as much empathy as I can have with wanting to keep a healthy lifestyle. I cannot. Uh, my empathy skills will pale in trying to understand the level of PTSD-like symptoms that women have surrounding their body image, uh, their fashion since uh, all from a culture which makes billions upon billions every year and they promote anxiety and depression yeah. in women while claiming to do the opposite. And so depression is so common these days that I also said, show me someone who claims that they don't have depression and I will show you someone who is lying to themselves and everyone around them. Absolutely. So if you take depression as the gateway disability, Congratulations, we're all disabled. Uh, and 
we all have special needs. If you take, if you determine that special needs, which is another term, I don't like. You don't like that term. I'm using it as a analogy because I brought it up in the other interview. My special needs in academia were a lot of learning disabilities, uh, but my deepest need is to be loved, understood, and accepted as I am. That brings me to some, to wrapping this up. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you what what could people like myself do? What could what could other people do to help people with disabilities out? What and what? Do, well, okay. What are we doing wrong, and how can we correct what we're doing? So before I answer that, just to finish sure. up the metaphor, so it doesn't get lost. If you define special needs like I just did as the deepest desire of humans of uh, connection, love, understanding, then congratulations. We all have special needs and we all have depression uh, and anxiety and self-doubt. Congratulations. We all disabled. Uh, and so getting to your final question, which it's a great one to end on, I could be snarky a little and say, just shut up and listen and hear what you've been missing. Uh, but I don't want to be that snarky. But really... The listening and not assuming you know what a person with a disability or disabilities needs, is going through, wants, desires, have them tell or let them tell you what they need, their story, their passion, in, instead of assuming that because of your able-bodiedness and culture will tell you this, you already know everything they as second-class citizens, which we are not, need, deserve, want. Uh, Because at the end of the day, none of us are mind readers. uh, And no matter how much someone thinks they can read body language, it will you can only learn so much. And so listen, be patient, 
tried to empathize, tried to get out of the tragedy narrative of, oh, shucks, you went to the store today. Good for you. I don't know how you do it. I couldn't be disabled like you. I mean, it's not, it's not that hard to be a decent, compassionate, empathetic human being. It's just not. Uh, And so that's what I would uh, end on, is that we want to be heard in our own voices. We want to be able to tell our own stories. We will ask and very often demand what we need. And I mean, it's not that hard. If the world was more accessible than it is now, and it certainly has progress in that way, the world would be a better place for all of us. Because remember, you can join the disability community anytime uh, through a temporary injury or something more permanent. It doesn't have to be at birth. It could be uh, in your teens, uh, adulthood, late adulthood, but just stop with the tragedy narrative. We're just living our lives the best way we can, just like you and your friends and your family. So to wrap up a very long answer, just listen and focus on what the person is telling you about their experience. What you would do to what I hope you would do to any new co-worker or any new um, friend you meet at the bar or what have you. It's so easy to be a decent human being and we've lost that uh, notion and it needs to come back sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. We will all be better off for it. Keith, I want to thank you for doing these two interviews. And I want to thank you for having me as your guest here in your home and 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 doing the work that we've done. Um, it, th- this has been like a very important week for me. I mean, you, I mean, granted, we started on Thursday. We're ending on Sunday. It, it's been It's been a week. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it, uh, I've learned a lot and I, and I hope you realize, I mean, I mean that honestly, I, I, I've honestly learned a lot about you and I've learned a, a lot about, um, 
I, I don't want to say the disability community. I, I don't know if that's if that's appropriate or not. No, no. I'm only one voice in a very marginalized community that often gets overlooked. Uh, when you hear the term diversity, it's usually hiring other uh, other uh, groups of people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to constantly be overlooked because of our disabilities and our talents go extremely undervalued. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we are a very diverse, very feisty, very headstrong community. We don't always get along, just like any other community. Mm-hmm. So just because you've met me, do not assume uh, and I know you wouldn't, but just for your listeners, do not assume you now know what cerebral palsy is. Because, like I say, very frankly, in the estrangement paper, over 90% of what you will read about cerebral palsy does not affect me. Uh, they affect others, uh, but I mean that is just the way it is. I mean that uh, pokes up the why I have lingering estrangement from my own disability psyche, uh, but, I mean, you can meet one of any group and you wouldn't assume, or it certainly wouldn't be advisable, that you now know that group. Uh, and it affects different people, different ways, different genders, different skin color. Uh, It's a mixed bag, uh, but we all have our own stories to tell. And to end on a definite note, we all want to tell our own stories and not be shamed into a super crap a, a tragedy narrative because uh, our stories have values our talents have value and it's way past time that uh, the temporarily abled body society recognizes that and fully embraces the totality of what diversity really means. Once again, I would like to thank my special guest, Keith Murphy DeConcini from Disability Empowerment Now, for joining me on these two 
and soon to be more episodes of the Federal Chronicles radio show. Be sure to find Keith and his own podcast by going to, all one word, disabilityempowermentnow.com. Find out more about the Fedora Chronicles by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com. That's where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram by simply searching for us on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so that you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, Chronicle at google.com are great ways to drop us a line with your comments and show topic suggestions. And if it's any good, we promise we will read your comment on the air. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fedora Chronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the podcast, updates on what we're doing, and for $5 a month, you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug of your choice. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at Zazzle.com slash store slash Fedora Chronicles. The theme songs for the show are Royal Flush and Black Cabaret by All of Music. All other music on the show is listed on the show page and has been provided to us by Premium Beats from Shutterstock. Copyright The Fedora Chronicles 2020. All rights reserved. On behalf of my co-host Jason and I, this is Eric Renner King Fisk signing off and reminding you Keep your chins up and your fedoras on.